podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is September 20th. Hope you're all well. Hope you didn't miss me too much yesterday. Uh, We had Champions League action last night, so we're going to run through what we had last night, what we have tonight, and then we'll get on to the real purpose of this podcast, which is, of course, to be nostalgic. Uh, AC Milan nil, Newcastle nil. Good point away for Newcastle. Obviously got outplayed, Milan had the better chances, but I think Newcastle will be really happy to have taken a point on their first game back in the Champions League after 20-odd years. I think Milan showed that they 
They're very rudimentary, that Milan team. I, I don't think they're particularly well coached. There's a lot of talent there, but they're quite predictable as well, and I don't see them doing much damage. I do see Newcastle getting out of this group. Uh, RB Leipzig 3, Young Boys 1 in the other early kickoff. Mohamed Simakin put Leipzig 1 up. Elia equalised. Javerschlager and Benjamin Sesko gave Leipzig the win. PSG 2, Dortmund 0, an Mbappe penalty on 49 and an Ashraf Hakimi goal on 58 gave PSG a fairly straightforward run-of-the-mill win. I think PSG are two players short of having a, a squad of 15 to 18 players that could win this competition. A, one starting midfielder, someone... A Verratti replacement. I mean, I know Vitinha is meant to be that. I'm not hugely sold on him as a starter. I think he'd be a good squad player. But I think they're lacking that little bit of connectivity, that little bit of guile to link midfield and attack, mid, midfield to the attack. Love the defence. Hakimi, Marquinhos, Skriniar, Hernandez might be the best defensive group in Europe as they get more comfortable with each other. Donnarumma and goal, obviously very good. And Ugart in front of them, that is a tremendous six-man group. They the one thing they don't have defensively is they don't have good depth at centre back. I know they have Kimpembe. I feel like they're missing one really reliable centre back that they could just drop in and out as and when they need it. They address that. I think that completes the defense. They get that midfield starter. I think that completes the midfield group because they have good depth in midfield as well. And Vitinha would become part of that depth. And up front, you have to love the options. You've got Dembele, you've got Colomuani, you've got Mbappe, you've got Goncalo Ramos, you've got Bradley Barcola, you've got Kang, uh, Lee Kangin, you've got Asensio. They're, they're loaded in attack. One in midfield, one in defence, and I genuinely think they can win this competition. This is the best squad they've had since the Qataris bought the club. Uh, Shakhtar won Porto 3. Galano put Porto 1 up on 8 minutes. Kelsey equalised on 13. Galano scored on 15 to put Porto 2-1 up. And then Mady Tarami made a 3-1 on 29. And that was all she wrote for that game. Uh, Moving on, Manchester City 3. Red Star Belgrade 1. Usman Bakari put Red Star one up and gave City a bit of a scare, but then Julian Alvarez on 47 and again on 60 and a Rodri goal on 73. City had 37 shots and six on target in this game. Sorry, 16 on target. 16 on target and they scored three goals. So that tells you both they're shooting a little bit aimlessly at times, but they're creating a load of chances. And that's what you'd expect them to do against Red Star. There'll be other nights when they have that exact same game and Erling Haaland gets four. Lazio won, Atletico Madrid won. Pablo Barrios scored on 29 to put Atleti one up. Ivan Providel, uh, late, late corner to Lazio. Ball played in, half cleared. Some shouts for penalty. 
falls to Luis Alberto. He crosses it back in, and Providel just goes in, no one picks up, and he heads home, which would be normal, except for the fact that he's the goalkeeper. And that is the first goal in open play in the Champions League since uh, signing Bolas in December 2009. Um, we have had one since, Vincente Inyema, but that was a penalty. Hans-Jörg Bolt has scored two penalties. But that's the first open play goal in the Champions League in almost 14 full years. And Lazio get a point. Barcelona 5, Royal Antwerp nil. João Felix on 11, Robert Lewandowski on 19, an own goal on 22. That's game over. Gavi scores on 54, and then João Felix wraps it up on 66. And the final one then, Feyenoord 2, Celtic nil. Calvin Stengs on the stroke of half time. Celtic then have two players sent off in the space of five minutes in the second half. Uh, Lagerbelke and Holm. And then Johan Bekesh um, wraps it up on 76. Good win for Feyenoord. Celtic just really, really naive. Poorly managed, of course, because Brendan just doesn't know what he's doing in the Champions League. And remember, like, Feyenoord missed a penalty in this game as well. Um, So it, it could have been worse. The the home sending off is just a horrendous challenge. Horrendous challenge. And he's obviously going to probably get a three-game ban from here. Um, Feyenoord also had a, had a goal disallowed. They, they probably could have won at... Ra- ran out four or five nil winners on the night. Uh, but thankfully they didn't. Tonight, we've got eight games at the early kickoff slot, which is quarter to six UK time. Real Madrid versus Union Berlin and Galatasaray versus Copenhagen. In the 8pm kickoffs, it is Bayern Munich versus Manchester United, Benfica versus Red Bull Salzburg, Braga versus Napoli, Arsenal versus PSV, Sevilla versus Lens. And Real Sociedad versus Inter. So lots of good games up. Lots of good games. I, I think the Galatasaray Copenhagen game is the early game that I'll watch. But there's a lot of choice for the late one. I'm tempted to go Real Sociedad because I want to have a, another look at Kubo. But then Braga, Roger Fernandez might play. He's a lot of fun to watch. And obviously, Quiche is one of the most exciting players in Europe. Uh, watching United get their backsides paddled by Bayern is also appealing. So lots of good options, lots and lots of good options, some good football tonight, and then obviously more good football to come in the coming, well, the coming days. Uh, It is a a day Thursday with the Europa League and the Conference League. Uh, But that's for tomorrow. Champions League is for tonight. For now, it is time. Put on your Baggy your jeans, your stonewashed jeans, maybe some ripped knees in your jeans. We're going to take a little trip down memory lane. We're going back in time to take a look at an international tournament, the European Championships in 1992. Eight teams, four stadiums in Sweden, June 10th to 16th. We're coming off a World Cup which had been won by the Germans, which was preceded by a European Championship that was won by the Netherlands. 
those two teams were the favourites going into this competition. The expectation was Germany, Netherlands. If they don't meet beforehand, that's the final and everybody's thrilled. Uh, the four stadiums, we are in Gothenburg, we are in Stockholm, Norrköping and Malmo. And we'll look at the squads because there's just some wonderful players. And before we actually get to the squads, let's take a look at the countries that are involved. So your two seeded teams, the whole Sweden, the holders, the Netherlands. Your qualifiers then, CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, we went through this weird stage where the former Soviet states were all still together and being called different things for different competitions. But the Commonwealth of Independent States is what they played under in this tournament. Uh, We had England, managed by Graham Taylor. We had France, we had Germany, we had Scotland, and we had Yugoslavia until we didn't. So Yugoslavia had already begun the process of splitting up post, you know, communist downfall. And the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was placed under sanctions by the UN in late May because of the outbreak of the Yugoslav Wars. FIFA and UEFA then suspended Yugoslavia from competitive football, meaning they could not participate in the tournament. So Denmark, who'd missed out on qualification behind Yugoslavia in their group, got a late phone call. The Danes were not prepared. They had not trained for a competition. Many of them were on holiday. And yet they rocked up and had had themselves a rare old time. So on to the squads then. So the Danish squad. Just go through notable names in some of these squads. Peter Schmeichel's the first one. Obviously, everybody is aware of Peter Schmeichel and what an outstanding goalkeeper he was through his career for Manchester United, for the national team. One of the all-time greats. At this point, he's already... 28 years of age and people forget like he joined United in 91 he was 27 he'd already had an extensive career before joining United spent eight years at United was 35 when he left and I do remember when he left people were surprised because oh he's only been here so long but he was older when he got there uh Lars Olsen was the captain an experienced defender Kent Nielsen another experienced defender in there uh Johnny Mulby not to be confused with the great Jan Mulby. Cousins, he's in the squad. Uh, Fleming Poulsen was a pretty exciting striker back in the day. Lars Elstrup, another fairly exciting attacker. Brian Laudrup, for me, he's a top three Danish player of all time. It was incredible for Rangers, obviously. Things didn't work out as well at Chelsea. But he'd had a successful career before that. Uh, Torben Picnic, uh, often laughed at by Liverpool fans because he was an absolute disaster with the Reds. But prior to joining Liverpool, he was pretty good. He was a pretty good centre-back. Uh, Kim Vilfort, decent player. 
and John Jensen, who was pretty much an unknown at this point, uh, playing for Bronby, not really known outside of the Bundesliga to those of us, or outside of the Danish league, to those of us who you know didn't have a whole lot of access to European football. He'd had a spell with Hamburg and gone back to Bronby where he began his career but that was in the, the 80s. And again, this information was was difficult to access back then because the internet didn't exist. Um, so yeah, no one no, no one knew really who, who John Jensen was. Uh, in the England squad, you've got just some really good players. They, the Danes, by the way, managed by Richard Muller-Nielsen. The English squad, Chris Woods, excellent goalkeeper, never quite established himself as England's number one. Uh, I think he won 40 caps there, thereabouts, all told, 43 caps. But he was kind of, he, he got stuck because the years he should have been number one, Shilton was still number one. And he didn't really get to establish himself in the England team until he was 31 years of age when Shilton finally buggered off. But when Chris Wood, Chris Wood's rather was at, Norwich and then at Rangers, he should have been regularly playing for England and unfortunately he wasn't. Um, was very good for Sheffield Wednesday and then obviously had a bit of a, a journeyman end to his career and obviously David Seaman comes along and takes the spot from him. So very unfortunate to only win 43 caps. He was a really good goalkeeper. Uh, Keith, or Keith Curl, player I always liked from Manchester City. Uh, player noted for having having strange knees, very very strange knees. Uh, would also have a good career. For, you know, he was at Wimbledon, played for Wolves a little bit later. Had a long career, a uh, bit of a journeyman in in truth, but spent the the best part of his career with Manchester City, or his best years, I should say, with City. Stuart Pearce obviously is a legend. Uh, Martin Keown, arguably the best man to man defender that the Premier League era has seen. Des Walker, phenomenal defender, incredible speed, good on the ball, very, very underrated. Came through at Forest, was important for them, went to Sampdoria, did well, but for some reason just didn't settle in in Italy and came home and played for Sheffield Wednesday then and then would finish off at Forest. 59 caps, it should have been a lot more. Mark Wright, another one who didn't win nearly enough caps. Injuries, again, a plague here. 45 caps. He was genuinely top class for the better part of a decade. But injuries just ruined things for him. Final defender in the squad then was Tony DiRigo, who's a really good left-back and was the left-back in the Leeds team that won the league title. I should mention the second goalkeeper in the squad is Nigel Martin. And again, one who's very, very unfortunate not to have won a lot more caps. Ended up with 23, but just was around at a time when there was great English goalkeepers like Chris Woods, like David Seaman, like Tim Flowers. Unlike now, if Nigel Martin was around now, he'd win 100 caps easily because he'd be so far and away the best English goalkeeper. But just unfortunate of the era he was in. Midfielders, we had David Platt, who was playing for Barry at this point. Um, Had obviously made his name with Villa and 
exploded on the world scene at the 1990 World Cup. Trevor Stephen, really, really good player, was with Marseille at this point. Andy Sinton, he's another that had incredible talent, but just so much bad luck with injuries. Uh, Only the 12 caps for him. Carlton Palmer, with respect, should never have played for England. Neil Webb, very, very talented, but very, very frustrating. A uh, bit of a journeyman tail end to his career, but for Reading, then Portsmouth particularly, looked a real star in the making, went to Nottingham Forest and really exploded and was outstanding for them. United paid, I think, a British record to buy him. It just didn't work out. Back to Forest, had a bunch of loans, ended up kind of playing in the lower leagues. Very, very talented player. Won 26 caps. Probably should have won more. Uh, Paul Merson, another who didn't win nearly enough caps for England. 21 in total. Much of that was down to off-the-field stuff, but also his his position was a position where England constantly had real talent. Uh, Tony Daly, tremendous left-winger, old-school left-winger, great pace. Great skill on the ball, could beat players for fun. Similar style of play to Ryan Giggs. Not Giggs level, but quicker than Giggs. Didn't have Giggs' delivery, but should have won a lot more than seven caps. Uh, but injuries, injuries spoiled his career. David Batty, obviously brilliant com- uh, combative midfielder. And then in attack, you had Nigel Clough. Um, probably was just a step below international class. Won 14 caps, never scored. Gary Lineker, obviously one of the all-time great English number nines. Alan Smith, again, probably a step below international class. And a very young, 21-year-old Alan Shearer brought along, managed by, as I said, Graham Taylor. France, uh, Michel Platini was manager. You've got Emmanuel Petit, a young Emmanuel Petit, 21 years of age. You've got Laurent Blanc, who's established himself as one of the premier centre-backs in Europe at this point. Didier Deschamps would go on, obviously, and win multiple European um, European Cups with Marseille and then Juve, and obviously has won the World Cup as a manager of France. Uh, obviously won as the, the World Cup as captain of France as well, but at this point, he's still a young player at 23. Jean-Pierre Papin, 28 years of age, He's feared throughout Europe. He's an outstanding goal scorer. He's maybe the best volleyer of the ball the game has seen. Uh, Luis Fernandez, excellent midfielder, had been a key part in the French team in 1984 when they won this competition um, in that legendary French midfield, Le Cara Magique. Him, Alan Garisse, Jean Tigana and Michel Platini, that magic box midfield, just phenomenally good. And him as that sitting, protecting defensive midfielder, Tigana could then go and do a rook. Tigana is the original N'Golo Kante. He's that roaming, destroying midfielder. Garisa was the link player. He was sort of your Iniesta type. And then obviously everybody knows about Platini. Uh, Basil Boli, very, very good centre-back, very aggressive, very powerful, scored the most important goal in Marseille's history to win them the European Cup. Could be a little bit reckless, though. 
Uh, Remy Gard, uh, meh. Eric Cantona in the squad, 26 years of age. Obviously, his international career didn't last a whole lot longer for a variety of reasons. Um, this is before he joins United. This is this summer. He's just won the league title with Leeds, goes to the Euros, would join United a little bit later at the, in this year, 92. And obviously, that's where the real... Cantona legend takes off. And Jocelyn Ang- Anglema, uh, just a very good, strong defender, playing right back, play centre back. Currently the head coach of the Guadeloupe national team. I was unaware of that. Uh, Sweden, Thomas Ravelli, legendary goalkeeper. Roland Nielsen, outstanding right back, played for Sheffield Wednesday. Patrick Anderson, very young Patrick Anderson at this point. He's only 20. He'd go on and achieve really impressive things in his career. But you never would have known it when he failed at Blackburn, having moved from Malmo after this competition. Goes to Borussia Mönchengladbach, spends six years there, then goes to Bayern, wins a European Cup with them, uh, should have won two, and then plays for Barca before ending up back with... Malmo won 96 caps in the end, but going into this competition, he had nine. Uh, Joachim Bjorklund, another outstanding young defender at this point. Uh, he's a year older. He's actually not a year older. He's five months older, but he has turned 21 by this point. And obviously, most people will remember him from Rangers or Valencia or even a spell at Sunderland, but he was a really good defender. Never quite lived up to the expectations of him. But him and Anderson together were excellent. Stefan Schwartz, the young midfielder at this point, he'd play for Arsenal a little bit later. Great left foot. Uh, Jonas Thurn, really liked him. Really, really liked Jonas Thurn. Anders Limpar was the original inverted winger in the Premier League. Uh, he'd been starring for Arsenal at this point. was horrible to play against because he was a right-footed left winger. And right-backs just weren't used to this, to having their opposition player drift in field and caused them problems. He was so important for George Graham's arsenal. Thomas Brolin was at this point one of the brightest young prospects in world football. Uh, you've got Lars Eriksson as a backup goalkeeper. Who else do we have here? Kenneth Anderson, really good target man striker. And Martin Dowling, who people will remember from a spell at Blackburn that wasn't great. But that was very much post-prime. His best years came with Borussia Mönchengladbach. He suffered terribly from back issues late in his career. Um, I think that's actually what ended his ended his, his playing career totally. And then there was a big hoo-ha. Uh, let me see. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Blackburn later sued the insurance company. He refused to pay out over the injury, claiming it was normal wear and tear. Initially, the uh, although the initial verdict was given in favour of the club, the Court of Appeal overturned the verdict and sent it back to the lower court. The High Court ruled in favour of the insurance company, decreeing that the player probably had a pre-existing injury. So he had a pre-existing injury because he'd gotten hurt when he was at Roma. And that caused that spell to be a failure. He goes back on loan to Gladbach. He does well at Gladbach and Blackburn think, okay, well, He's obviously fine. They spent four million on him, and unfortunately, just it didn't work out. But 
tremendous player before the injury. Um, so that's their squad. In Group B, then, we've got the Commonwealth of Independent States. Um, Andre Kinchelskis of Manchester United is probably the star turn in this squad, though Sergi Euron was a decent player. Uh, Igor Kolivanov was a decent player. Victor Onepka, I really liked. He would go on and play for uh, Real Oviedo and Real Vallecano and was really, really good. He was like a, a centre-back or defensive midfielder, but he could also play the sweeper role really well. And he had a great career for the national team. Um, 109 caps. He's probably him and Kinchelski is probably my two favorite players in this squad. Dimitri Corrine is another one that everybody would know because he played for Chelsea for a long time. Uh, this he got the move off the back of this competition. Once again, English clubs just waiting for international tournaments to then go and buy players based on what they see. This German team obviously is the reigning World Cup winner, and I have talked about them. In the not so recent past, um, Bodo Wilgner, Stefan Reuter, Andy Bramey, Jurgen Kohler, Guido Buchfeld, Andy Muller, Thomas Hassler, Rudy Voller, Thomas Dahl, Karl-Heinz Riedler, Andreas Thom, Thomas Helmer, Matthias Zammer, Stefan Effenberg, Jurgen Klinsmann, Christian Vorns. This squad is absolutely loaded with talent. Loaded with talent. So you can see why they were one of the two favourites. The Dutch obviously had won it in 88. They'd been knocked out of the World Cup in 90 by the Germans. And as I said, the expectation was these two would come out of the group and then they did get to the final and that's where we'd see uh, them go head to head. Hans on Breuklin at this point was well past his best and probably should have been retired. Uh, Ronald Koeman, Danny Blind, two outstanding all-timers. Jan Wouters, a young Dennis Burkamp, still yet to move to Inter. He moved to Inter off the back of this. Was still at Ajax at 23, which will tell you how differently things are now because if a player like Burkamp came along now and had the success that he'd had at Ajax, there's absolutely not a chance he'd have played seven seasons there. He'd have been gone four to five years earlier based on promise alone let alone the, the, what he delivered in his last three years. They wouldn't have, he wouldn't have even been allowed to stay that long. So neither Ajax nor Burkamp would have gotten the benefit of those years. Um, one of my all-time favourites. Then you're looking at all-time great. You're looking at all-time greats with obviously Koeman, Blind, Burkamp, but Rijkaard, Van Basten and Rudholz, the big three. The linchpins of arguably, the, well, in my opinion, the greatest club side ever. Those three and that defence, unstoppable. Uh, Jan van Schip, Wim Kieft, Stanley Menzo, who was a superbly talented goalkeeper and really should have been in the national team much earlier. Only won six caps. There was a spell where he was arguably the best keeper in Europe when he was at Ajax. And his career kind of petered out once he left Ajax, but the fact that Van Broeklen continued to get games over him, like 88, fair enough, but from 89 through, it should have been Stanley Menzel. He was so, so good. Uh, Rob Vichka, brother of Richard Vichka, uh, a young Frank De Boer, Vim Young, 
good player. Aaron Vinter, very good player. Uh, Peter Bose, who's now the manager of PSV Eindhoven. And a young Brian Roy, uh, who'd obviously come to the Premier League with Nottingham Forest. He would move to Foggia after this tournament, then to Forest and have that great partnership with Collymore. Really, really good player. Always one who I enjoyed watching. Uh, they were managed by the great Renus Michaels. Um, and finally, the Scots then. So Andy Roxburgh is manager. Andy Gorham, great goalkeeper for Rangers over the years. Uh, Richard Goff, tremendous centre-back, had great success with Rangers. Paul McStay of Celtic, just a legendary midfielder for Celtic. Ali McCoyce, Brian McClare, Gordon Jury, really good forward options there. Uh, Stuart McCall and Gary McAllister, really good in midfield. You'd wonder why, at 27, though, neither of them had more than 17 caps. Uh, Kevin Gallagher, who was at Coventry at the time, would go on to Blackburn and, and have success there. Pat Nevin, 28. He had 12 caps. He's one of the most talented Scotland players ever. He won 28 caps in total. I do wonder, and I'd love if somebody could explain to me, why so many of these super talented Scottish players got so few caps in this era. Um, A young Duncan Ferguson was in the squad as well. The Yugoslavs had named their squad, so we might as well just touch on some of these. Uh, Slavisa Jukanovic, Vladimir Jugovic, Dejan Savicevic, Predrag Nijatovic, Dragan Stojkovic, Sinisa Mihailovic, Dejan Petkovic. There's just so many good players in this squad. And obviously, this is they're all young at this point. Like, Jukanovic is 23. He obviously had a good career, not a great career, a good career, but we know of him more as a, a manager. Uh, he's had three spells in England with Watford, Fulham, and then Sheffield United, and he's had success. Vladimir Jugovic was 22 at this point. Savicevic was 25, a little bit older. They're both still with Red Star Belgrade at this point. Predrag Mijatovic is playing for Partizan at 23. Dragan Stojkovic is 27. He's just moved to Marseille two years earlier, so he was 25 when he moved. Sinisa Mihailovic is 23, still at Red Star. And, you know, that Red Star team that won the European Cup, made up of these players. It's incredible to think that in the modern age, even if an academy was lucky enough to produce that level of talent over a three- to four-year run, they'd never get to see them all play together because they'd just be sold on. And it's just, it's such a shame. It really is such a shame. They're 12 months removed from having won the European Cup. Their country's just fallen apart, as, as the country as they know it has just fallen apart. Their national team has been thrown out of international tournaments. Their entire way of, of being has just been thrown up in the air. Um, on to the competition itself, then. Uh, we have been through the squads, so we can close that. Uh, notable officials. Nobody really. No English officials appointed 
for this competition. Bo Carlson, uh, I remember him. Peter Mickelson, I don't remember. I'm just surprised there's no British uh, officials at all. Neither referees, linesmen, or fourth officials. Uh, anyway, group stage. Group A, or group one, as it was called, for reasons known only to people in Switzerland. Two points for a win. Keep that in mind. Sweden won. France won. Yanni Eriksson scores for the Swedes. Jean-Pierre Papin equalises. Denmark nil. England nil. So England, who'd come in expecting to breeze through the group stage, shocked at the first hurdle with a draw against the Danes. Then France nil. England nil. So things are starting to get a little bit tight for England, but they should still win the third game and get through. Sweden won Denmark nil. Thomas Brolin with the only goal of the game. Then we get the big shocks in the final uh, match day of Group A. Sweden 2, England 1. Yanni Eriksson equalises on 51 after David Platt had put England ahead early on. And then Thomas Brolin scores the winner. And the Swedes top the group. And England are out. And the expectation is that France will go through with them. Because the Danes shouldn't even be here. But Larsen, Henrik Larsen puts the one up, Stole Larsen, as he was known, uh, puts the one up on um, eight minutes. Papan equalizes. And again, it looks like the French will go through. And then the outstanding Lars Elstrup makes it 2-1. And the Danes are through. And this really did send shockwaves through international football because pre-tournament, the expectation was it's France and England from Group A, it's the Netherlands and the Germans from Group B. That's the semi-finals in whatever one versus one, whatever way it's going to be, and then we'll get a good final. And instead, Sweden and Denmark go through. France made major changes, obviously, after this. They sacked their manager. They brought in uh, Gerard Houllier. Then they failed to qualify for the 94 World Cup, and there was more changes to be made. But, I mean, we went through the squad. There's a lot of talent there. It's just that they for whatever reason it wasn't, they weren't a cohesive unit. England, again, plenty of talent, maybe not any standout world-class players. Lineker was probably a world-class finisher still at that point, but he was tailing off. Um, They had very good defenders, but not necessarily world-class defenders in the same. Midfield was probably the area where they were weakest at this point. Because obviously Robson injuries and age had caught up with him. Uh, Gaza was injured. Ince hadn't really established himself enough. England were fairly weak in midfield at that point. In Group B, the Netherlands beat Scotland 1-0 through a Dennis Burkamp goal. The CIS in Germany played at a 1-1 draw. Drubolowski scored a penalty on 64. Thomas Hassler equalised in the last minute. The Germans beat Scotland 2-0. Karl-Heinz Riedler and Stefan Effenberg with the goals. 
Netherlands and the CIS drew nil-nil. Then we got the first clash of Netherlands versus Germany, what people thought was a precursor to the final. And the Netherlands won 3-1. Rijkaard scored on four minutes. Witschke scored on 15. Klinsman got one back on 53. But Burkamp wrapped it up. And then, in what was a shock, and if they'd started the tournament a little bit better, could have sent them through, the Scots beat CIS 3-0. CIS, having gotten draws with the two really strong teams in the group, the Scots wiped the floor with them. Paul McStay on seven minutes, Brian McClare on 16, and a late Gary McAllister penalty on 84 minutes, and the Scots go home with their pride intact. Don't advance, but at least they didn't finish bottom of their group, like England. Uh, England go home as officially the worst team in the competition. Uh, well, actually, CIS technically did because they're the lowest goal difference, but we're just going to throw it on England anyway, because why not? And CIS had a tougher group. Uh, into the semi-finals we go then. So, Sweden 2, Germany 3. The Swedes' run in the competition comes to an end. Thomas Hassler scores on 11 minutes. Karl-Heinz Riedler makes it 2 on 59. Thomas Brolin equalises with a penalty on 64. And the world is willing the Swedes to get an equaliser. But Riedler scores again on 88. Kenneth Anderson scores on 89 to potentially just set up a very tense last five minutes, but it wasn't to be, and the Germans advance. I can vividly remember watching that game, and I have watched it a bunch since. It's a great game of football. It really is. And that German team were so good. But the Swedes gave them everything they could handle on the day. In the second semi-final, then, this is expected to be a cakewalk. Of course the Netherlands are going to win. Of course they are. Denmark aren't meant to be here. But unfortunately, no one told Story Larsen. He scores on five minutes. Burkamp equalises on 23. Normal service is resumed. The Netherlands will win from here on. Nobody told Larsen. He scores again on 33. And from there, it's very much back to the wall for the Danes. The Dutch finally break them down. 86 minutes, Frank Lampard, uh, Frank Lampard, Frank Reichard scores. And we go to extra time. There's no splitting the teams. We get to penalties. Koeman scores, Larson scores. He was never missing having scored two goals in the game. Van Basten misses in what was a huge surprise. Polson scores, Burkamp scores, Elstrup scores. Reichard scores, Vilfort scores, Vichka scores, and then Kim Christofte steps up. Talented player, never reached the potential of what he could have been. Had a couple of spells outside of Denmark, always ended up going back, never really seemed to settle, only won 19 caps. He would have been, if he if he'd gotten the right move to the Bundesliga, I think in the 90s, the way the Bundesliga was using a sweeper would have suited him. Unfortunately for him, he was already 30 by 1990. So by the time the the Bundesliga sweeper had, you know, the, the Zammer, Matthias kind of 
sweeper, that that template. That's what he would have been perfect for. But he was already towards the tail end of his career, unfortunately. But like I say, he was a, a good player. He steps up, he scores, and the Danes are through to the final. And everybody is stunned. Everybody is stunned. Because remember, not only are Denmark not meant to be here, their best player isn't there. Michael Laudrup isn't part of the squad. He had a falling out with the manager. He hadn't patched things up. Decided not to play. His brother decided to play. His brother was outstanding in the competition. But he didn't go. And what a difference he could have made. But they still get to the final. But they're going to lose. Because Germany are the reigning world champions and Denmark aren't meant to be here. And they're missing the best player. So this is easy. The German team on the day, Bodo Wildner and goal. A back three of Koller, Buchwald and Helmer. Reuter and Bremer as wingbacks. Matthias, Effenberg and Hassler as a midfield three. Riedler and Klinsmann up front. Back to front, that's an incredible team. World-class players everywhere. The Danes, you know, Peter Schmeichel. Lars Olsen, Torben Picknick, Kent Nielsen. It's solid, but it's not as good as the German back three. The wingbacks, Sivebeck and Christophe. They're decent. They're not as good as the German wingbacks. The midfield three, John Jensen, Kim Vilfort, and Storey Larsen. Again, they're very good. They're not as good as the German. Look what the Germans have. Up front, you've got Brian Laudrup and Fleming Poulsen. It's not a, not a patch on the Germans. So there's no way that Germany don't win this. And they're going to go back to back. It's the first time anyone's done this. They're going to go back to back. They're going to win a World Cup. They're going to win a European Championship. And then John Jensen, who for the rest of his career could not hit a barren door, was absolutely abysmal when shooting from any kind of range. Decides he's just going to leather one and buries it from 20 yards out. Literally, when he joined Arsenal, Arsenal fans who didn't know him, and, and all of us who didn't know him, thought, He's a long-range specialist, so Arsenal could do with that because they've got Merson and they've got Limpar on the wings. They've got Alan Smith and they've Ian Wright's up front for them now. So they're looking for someone to arrive from midfield who can who can shoot with a bit of power. And obviously, he's a good ball winner as well. He couldn't shoot to save his life. And somehow, in the biggest game of his career... He pulls off an absolute world, worldie and gives Bodo Wildner, arguably the best keeper on the planet at the time, absolutely no chance. And then the Germans batter them, absolutely batter them for 60 minutes. And then Kim Vilfort scores completely against the run of play. And that's it. It's 2-0. And the Germans give up. They don't know what to do. Just completely shell-shocked. At 1-0, they thought they were going to just come back and win. At 2-0, they had little hope. And the Danes, in the most unlikely of circumstances, win the European Championship. 
It's one of the greatest stories in the history of our game. This group of players who were not meant to be at this competition, missing their best player, underdog in every game. Every game they played, they were the underdog. They were the underdog against England, against France, and against Sweden in the group stage. They were the underdog against the Netherlands, who were favourites to win the competition, and then against the Germans. And each and every time, they overcame the odds. They drew with England. They did lose to the Swedes. That's the only game they lost in the competition. Then they beat France. Then they beat the Netherlands. And then they beat Germany. And they win the European Championship. And nobody can ever take it away from them. And this was a great competition because... These European Championships, now I think 96 is the best Euros, but 92 was great. It was on nice and early in the summer. Only the eight teams. You could actually invest yourself into these teams. You know, you get the sticker book. It wouldn't take you four years trying to find all the stickers. You wouldn't have to be plaguing your parents every day for new stickers. You know, you get a pack. Then two days later, you might get another two packs or whatever. Every bit of money you could get, you were getting a pack of stickers. But you'd fill your sticker book. You would fill it out because it was only 18, so it was easy. And I'm, I'm almost certain I still have mine somewhere in a box in the attic of my folks' house. But eight teams meant you could watch every game. You could watch and fall in love with these players that you didn't know beforehand. You could really invest yourself in some of these teams, some of these underdogs. And everybody did. Everybody did. Everybody got behind the Swedes, the the hosts, who shocked everybody by topping their group. Everybody got behind the Danes. Because it's fun to root for the little guy. You know, it's if you're watching Brighton versus Manchester United last week and you're a neutral fan, who are you supporting? Of course you're supporting Brighton because it's fun to root for the little guy. Unless you're a Palace fan, then you're not supporting Brighton because obviously rivalry. But for everybody else, maybe not Bournemouth, but everybody else, you're supporting Brighton because you want to see the little guy punch the big guy right in the chin. And then you want to see the big guy fall over because it's funny. And it was funny to see England getting knocked out. It was funny to see France getting knocked out. And it was incredible to watch this Danish team get better and better and better as the competition went on. And the brilliant thing is there wasn't too many matches. Like with so many of these international competitions now, there's just far too many matches. This competition had 15 matches total. 15. It was brilliant. 15 matches across 16 days. It was brilliant. Your top scorers for the competition, Story Larson, Dennis Burkamp, Carl Riedler, and Thomas Brolin, all finished with three. Jean-Pierre Papin, Frank Reichardt, Thomas Hassler and Jan Eriksson got two. 
Igor Drobolovsky, Klinsman, Elstrup, Jensen, Vilfort, Platt, Effenberg, Klinsman, Uvitschke, McAllister, McClare, McStay, and Kenneth Anderson scored the goals. The team of the tournament, Peter Schmeichel was picked as the goalkeeper. Jocelyn Anglema and Lauren Blanc were picked in the defence, which remains to this day one of the most laughable things that have ever taken place. Uh, Andy Bremer and Jürgen Koller were picked in the defence as well. No problem with either of them. Anglema and Blanc is silly. Uh, Laudrup, Effenberg, Hassler and Hullet in the midfield. And Burkamp and Van Basten up front. So the Danes win the competition. Germany get four players in. The Netherlands get three. The French get two. And the Danes get two. And the thing is, it's not outrageous, other than the two French lads. But the two lads you'd be bringing in for them, they wouldn't be Danish either. They just wouldn't. Now, the big omission from that, the guy who should have been picked in that team of the tournament, is Thomas Brolin, who was incredible. And he scored one of the greatest international goals I've ever seen. And I'd invite you all to open YouTube, type in Thomas Brolin Euro 92 goal and witness the goal he scored against England. And I'm going to watch it. I'm going to walk you through it. So it shows Platt's goal, which is a missed kick. It shows Ericsson's goal, which is a, a powering header that Chris Wood probably should have saved. So here's the England, the, the Brolin goal. So England have the ball on the right-hand side of the pitch in their own half. Brolin presses, wins the ball back, lays it off to Anderson, who gives it back to him, plays it to Dalin, who gives it back to him, and then hits the perfect shot as the ball just bobbles, flicks the outside of his right boot at it, and arrows it into the top corner. But that goal is one of the best international goals you'll ever see. The circumstances, the moment, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And one of the great things about, if you watch that clip, it's from the official UEFA account, is the despair in the commentator's voice as the game ends. And he says, well, there's no hope now. Because he'd been trying to make out that England still had hope. But they didn't. And out they went. And that wraps up Euro 92. If I was awarding a player of the tournament, I'd probably go with Thomas Browning. Certainly goal of the tournament. Dennis Burkamp was magnificent throughout as well. Frank Reichard was great. I'm not sure who I would drop to put Brolin in. Probably, actually, no, it would be Van Basten. He'd be the obvious choice to leave out. Um, just didn't have a good a good tournament by his own standards. Didn't score. Missed a penalty in the shootout. So I'm not really sure how he got in. 
spent that game against the Danes in the pocket of Torben Picnic. So I'm not really sure how he got selected. Uh, and if anyone can explain to me how Anglima and, and Blanc got in, I, I, I genuinely would love to know. I genuinely would love to know how. Because in no way was the French defence impressive in that competition. Like the Swedes tore the part in the opening game. I probably should have scored a couple more. England had good chances, and then the Danes cut them apart a couple of times as well. So I'm not having I'm not having that. We'll leave that there. That is Euro 1992. A great tournament. And they've made such a mess of the Euros now, there's far too many teams in it. I don't even look forward to it anymore. I'm not looking forward to next year's one. Yeah, it's a shame because I always love the European Championships. And we're going to go back and look at some older ones as well. We're going to look at 88, 84, 80. Uh, We'll look at some later ones as well. We've done 96 kind of because we did the German team, uh, but we'll do it a bit more in depth as well. Did we do the whole? No, no, I think we just did. I think we just did the German team round it. I don't think I I did Euro 96 as a whole. If I did, can someone let me know? Um, yeah, anyway, we'll take a break when we come back. News and gossip, and we're out the gap. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, on to the news side of things. First things first, there's a really good article on the BBC website written by Emma Smith about Union Berlin and their journey to playing Real Madrid in the Champions League. Well worth your while. Give that one a read. Um, Eric Ten Hag says he has never started his best 11. This sounds like bullshit, to be honest. Sounds like a manager who knows he's up against it. Now, maybe he means because he's never had the access to Greenwood. So that could be it. And that probably is it, actually, because if you think about United over the last 18 months... Greenwood would have been the nine, Rashford right wing, He uh, Bruno 10, obviously for him, Anthony on the the right. Rashford left, Anthony right, Bruno 10, Greenwood nine, Casemiro and Eriksen, and then whatever back for Shaw, the gnome, Varane, Delo or Wan-Bissaka. I don't even know who his first choice is. Wan-Bissaka, by the way, out for a couple of months. And then, and then De Gea in goal would have been his best 11 last season. Uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has criticised the behaviour of some players during his time as Manchester United manager, saying they were not as good as they thought they were. That's hilarious because you're an awful manager. Absolutely awful. You're a PE teacher. So, you know, the fact that you were even manager of Manchester United is quite embarrassing for that club. Um, He talked about how the Ronaldo departure turned out to be wrong. He bigged up the fact that he wanted Haaland and Rice and Bellingham and Kane. The fact is, you spent a fortune. The best part is, the club didn't have the budget with the financial constraints from COVID 
You spent ridiculous money. Ridiculous money. We discussed Moises Caicedo, but we felt we needed players ready. Like, come on. He said, Sancho's better on the left wing. Why'd you sign him for them when you had Rashford? He made a whole bunch of excuses and just made himself look like a clown. There's a reason no one's offered Ollie a real job since he got sacked. Uh, even Perisic is set to miss the remainder of the se- season with a torn ACL, which, given he's 34, is really, really tough. Now, he was obviously just going to be a squad player for them, but it's going to be tough for him to bounce back from that injury. That's a shame. Obviously been a really good player for a long time. Uh, Pep Guardiola says Manchester United, Manchester City are in trouble with a mounting injury list. So let's have a quick gander at what City's injury list might be. City had only had six outfield players on the bench for the Champions League victory. They're without Kevin De Bruyne, Jack Grealish, Mateo Kovacic, John Stones, and now Bernardo Silva is going to miss a few weeks. Um, well, John Stones is pretty much back, ready to play. Uh, Jack Grealish is back in a week or two. Kovacic is a short-term injury. So it's basically KDB and, and Bernardo. So, uh, like, nobody nobody should have any sympathy for Pep because no manager in history has ever had the deck stacked as much in their favour as him. Now, obviously, he does really well to make the most of it, but let's not pretend like he's working in any kind of tough environment. Uh, The Spanish women's players have agreed to end their boycott and return to playing, which is good news for the world champions. Um, On to the gossip. This is great. Chelsea and Bayern Munich are keeping an eye on Aaron Ramsdale after he was dropped for Arsenal's match against Everton. The source of that is one person and one person only. And it's Aaron Ramsdale, Aaron Ramsdale's agent. There's absolutely no way either of those clubs are looking at it. Maybe Chelsea because they're stupid, but Bayern aren't looking at him. Manchester United are ready to bid for Serge Nabry. I'm not sure why. Uh, Jose Jimenez is also of interest to United. He's a really good defender, like really, really good. He can never stay fit. And if you play him and the gnome as a pair, you're ending every game with 10 men. They're both way over aggressive. Now he's a, he's better. He's a much better defender than the gnome and he's good in the air, which obviously Martinez just hides from aerials, but he's never played more than 27 league games. And he's only played over 21 games. Sorry, he did. He played 28 last season. He's only played over 21 games four times in his career in the league. He's never played 40 games in all competitions. And that's for a club that's always in Europe. So that's a little bit of a concern. Uh, Newcastle are considering making a 52 million bid for Lucas Paqueta. Uh, I think that will be laughed at. Uh, Manchester United staff have expressed concerns over the growing involvement of Eric Ten Hag's agent, Keyes Vos, in the club's transfer activity. 
by all accounts, Rasmus Heusland was kind of forced to change agents by this gentleman to secure his move. Uh, there's definitely some some dodgy stuff going on there. The home nations and the Republic of Ireland will have to play qualifying matches for Euro 2028, even if they are tournament hosts, under a plan being considered by UEFA. Well, any plan that UEFA have is generally a bad one. Um, but in fairness, you couldn't just say, right, Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, you're all in. That's four spots just taken. However, it is a bit crap if you're hosts and you're not getting to take part. Considering, like, Qatar got to play in a World Cup purely because they hosted one. Do you know? It would be a bit harsh. Um, I think that tournament should be held without England, personally. I think it should be Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And Northern Ireland. So there'll actually be five countries, to be fair. Do it without England. Just do it with the other four and let them in. Please let please let them in. Uh, Everton's prospective owners, 777 partners, would have to pay back... <clears throat> 140 million in loans provided by two other lenders for the club's new stadium if their takeover of the Toffees goes through. This is starting to get messy. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold is close to agreeing a new deal with Liverpool despite interest in Barcelona and Real Madrid. West Ham have opened contract talks with Mikel Antonio. Uh, Bernardo Silva will cost his next club 50 million thanks to a new release clause. David De Gea is wanted by Real Betis. I'm amazed he still hasn't signed anywhere. Um, Julian Bencono has completed a permanent move from Nottingham Forest to Olympiacos, having never played. Did he play? Did he maybe play one game? He missed all the last season with a torn ACL. Uh, obviously, Olympiacos are owned by the same club or the same, the same person that owns. Uh, Forest. Oh, I'm sorry. He did. He played three games last season before he got injured. Um, Liverpool Montevideo midfielder Fabrizio Diaz is moving to Al Jarafa in Qatar. Okay. Julian Draxler has also gone to Qatar. And Chelsea's 19 year old English defender Alfie Gilchrist has extended his contract by a further year, tying him to the club until 2025. Um, Okay. I mean, I assume it's just because they don't want to lose him for free next summer. Uh, He's a talented young centre-back. I don't see much of a path for him. At Chelsea, uh, he'll have to figure that part of it out. Uh, On to today's gossip then. Harry Kane would have waited until next summer to sign for Manchester United on a free if he had been given assurances over a move to Old Trafford. Real Madrid had put in a £60 million bid for Kane before he moved to Bayern, while PSG also considered an approach. Brentford head coach Thomas Frank says he would consider, consider selling Ivan Tony in January if the price was right. Well, he won't make that decision. That decision would be made above him. And it's almost certainly will be sold in January because he'll have 18 months left in his deal. And Brentford want to maximise the sale price because they owe a portion of the sale price to Peterborough, who have a sell-on clause. Uh, Arsenal, Chelsea and Tottenham are all interested in Tony. 
Tottenham's the best move for him. Arsenal's a good move for him, but they have Gabriel Jesus. Now, I know that there's concerns over Jesus' fitness. Ivan Tony's probably a better player overall. Jesus is really good in that Arsenal system, though. But Tony would offer them a different look. But then they've got Enketia as well. And Chelsea's a mess. They stay well clear of Chelsea. Uh, Arsenal sent scouts to Reading's EFL trophy match against Exeter to watch Caelan Vickers and Tyler Binden. Arsenal are also interested in Jamie Benoit-Gittens at Borussia Dortmund. Bocca Juniors are hopeful of agreeing a new contract with Valentin Barco. It's from 90minutes.com, which means they're just stealing it off an Argentine journalist and giving no credit. Aston Villa are in talks to give Esri Conza a new contract. Barcelona have shown an interest in Arthur Vermeeren with the 18-year-old tip to be the next Sergio Busquets. Um, Nobody who's ever watched Arthur Vermeeren play would suggest he's the next Sergio Busquets because he's a different type of player. Manchester United Chief Executive Richard Arnold held a Zoom meeting with staff at the club to address unhappiness over a variety of issues this season. I'd imagine the manager being crap is one of them. United had a £50 million bid for Evan Ferguson turned down this summer. Um, I, I don't believe that to be true. I genuinely don't believe that to be true at all. It's it's in a story on ESPN. A bid of fifty million for Evan Ferguson was laughed off. I genuinely don't believe there was a bid. Uh, Arsenal goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale is not looking to leave the club again. It's nineteenminutes.com, so you wouldn't put any faith in it. Graham Bailey's a spoofer, and who knows who Sean Walsh is? But it's unlikely, having just been dropped once. Uh, Chelsea and Bayern are monitoring the situation. That's just the mirror ripping off the male story. AC Milan owner Jerry Cardinal met Zlatan Ibrahimovic over a potential boardroom role for the ex-Sweden forward. Interesting. Former England, sorry, former Chelsea captain John Terry is part of a group interested in buying a 10% stake in the club with co-controlling owner Todd Bowley open to new investment. Well, that's weird. First of all, John Terry has no money. That's why he's charging people 100 euro for autographs. Secondly, why would Bowley be looking to sell a a share already? Now, Bowley only owns about 10% anyway. So it would be Clear Lake who'd be selling. And maybe that's just a way to get back some of their money. Uh, Mikel Antonio is keen to stay at West Ham and wants to sign a new contract. La Liga sides Real Betis and Valencia are both interested in signing David De Gea. Valencia have a really good goalkeeper. Um, the the Georgian kid. Um, let me pull his name up. Mamardashvili. Uh, so I don't think they'd need him unless they want him as a backup. And... Or, or potentially, you know, back up now to replace Mamadashvili, who is expected to leave next summer. Was a bit surprised he didn't leave this past summer. Um, 
Betis, their goalkeeping situation isn't tremendous. They've got Claudio Bravo uh, and they've got Rui Silva. Rui Silva's decent, though. Like, Rui Silva's probably the number one. Um, they kind of split games, but yeah, Rui Silva's good. So I, I guess... Actually, I don't know why they'd want the head, to be honest. Uh, Julian Nagelsmann will terminate an agreement with Bayern that will see him give up $17 million in order to take charge of the national team. So this is what Bayern were doing. They were kind of keeping him under contract on a gardening leave type of thing, but they're still paying a salary. Just wasn't coming to work. He was sitting at home for the next couple of years. If anyone wanted to hire him, they'd have to buy him out. And for the national team, as long as he's willing to give up his money, they're happy to let him go. Um, but this was a strange move by Byron. Normally, you just, you know, you make an agreement with the manager that you you pay him X amount, or if he gets another job, you'll make up the difference. Or if it's a guaranteed contract, you just pay him, a, a you know, you set up a payment structure. Byron decided to do something weird with this um, and keep him under contract. So he ne- he's never technically fired by the club. And uh, that's it. That's all we have for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.